0: What a joy uh, to gather again on Sunday. Met so many uh, new people, people visiting from out of town. We're thankful that you're here. I uh, hope uh, up to this point you have been encouraged with just the reading of scripture, uh, the singing of songs, getting to meet uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, we're just uh, thrilled. We love our church and uh, we love that you're visiting with us this morning. Well, I was uh, down and out sick last week, so always want to recognize Brother Nick for faithfully bringing us the word. Uh, Got to watch online and uh, just talk to a family who it's been a while since they've been in in person, and boy, what a joy just to be uh, together, to hear people sing in and uh, to enjoy that fellowship. So Brother Nick, thank you for bringing the word uh, last week. I also missed the fireworks show in our backyard. Last week, I heard there was like 60 people lighting fireworks, and so we missed that. But, you know, um, the 4th of July time is my favorite time. Um, My birthday is on the 3rd, so it was kind of a bummer to be sick, but I love celebrating America. Uh, I love summertime, especially here in Monterey where it's not 115 degrees, Um, but uh, summertime is the best, and especially for this summer because the Olympics are happening this summer in Tokyo. I'm thrilled that there's going to be breakdancing at the Olympics this year. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but that is my favorite sport apart from basketball. And I'm not sure if you've uh, caught this, but there has been some controversy as we're leading up to the Olympics. Uh, After finishing third at trials and qualifying for her second Olympics, hammer thrower Gwen Berry felt that The playing of the national anthem as she was up receiving her award, in her words, it was disrespectful, the playing of the national anthem. Barry has used her platform as an athlete to make a statement that she doesn't believe that she or her community has been treated with dignity equal to the claims of the national anthem and her citizenship as an American. Well, obviously, there's lots of folks who don't agree with that sentiment, some of them standing on the podium with her. Jack Brewer, an NFL, a former NFL player, he's been an outspoken critic. And so he had a few things to, to say in response to Barry's um, turning away of the flag. This is what he said The flag is not supposed to represent perfection, but the flag is the family, the American family. The country that we share, everyone is trying to work for the same goal. That's what our country represents. It's like walking into your house and slapping your mom. It makes no sense, and I don't understand it. This is him just processing what's going on. He goes on to say, our freedom is not free. The American people deserve to be represented by people who love them and people who stand for unity and all the good things that this country is about. Now, regardless of whether you side with Barry or Brewer, the fact remains that as an American Olympic athlete, Barry is a representative of this country. For better or for worse, we know that our country is not perfect, but she stands there wearing the red, white, and blue as a representative of America. This morning, as we come to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, we want to ask this question. What do you, if you're a professing Christian, what do your attitudes and your actions as a citizen of heaven, what do they say, what do they communicate about the person that you represent, the kingdom and the citizenship that you possess? Now, just by way of reminder, we are in Philippians chapter 1. And we've been spending time with Paul here in prison. He is in prison. He's shackled to the guards and he is awaiting the outcome of his sentence. And he's not sure if he's going to die or if he's going to continue to live. And last time we met, we said that he has two holy ambitions. He has this longing, this desire to go home and be with Christ because he knows that to be home in glory with Jesus is far better. And yet at the same time, as he's thinking about continuing on, to live his life here down on earth, he's thinking about others. He's thinking about their joy and their progress in the faith. And so he says there in one twenty one, "For me to live it, to, die, to live is Christ, and to die is gain." And Paul is saying again, "I'm happy to go home and be with the Lord, but to stay here is more necessary for your sake." And this is where we find ourselves this morning. So look there in Philippians. We'll start in verse 21, and we'll go all the way through the end of chapter in verse 30. But here's God's word to us this morning. Paul writes, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I'm, I'm going to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know what I will choose, but I am hard-pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith, so that your reason for boasting may abound in Christ Jesus in me through my coming to you again. Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake having the same struggle which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Oh, Father, would you please open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word. We need desperately, Lord, your Spirit's help. So please be our help this morning, and may Christ receive all the glory and honor. We pray in his name. Amen. Now, I want you to notice that what Paul has just said in these previous verses leading up to today is logically connected. Paul was adamant that if he was given more time on the earth, he was going to spend his time, he was going to spend his energy, he was going to spend his efforts on building up the church. It was for the spiritual good of the church that Paul wanted to remain. And then his next thought, just check the logic here, is... Philippians, I want you to do the same. I want to stick around for your joy and progress of the faith. I want you to have the same attitude, the same mentality, the same focus. Paul knew that God would use him for the advancement of the gospel, and he was doing that even in chains. And he also knew that if all of the believers had that same kind of attitude, there would be even more and more gospel advancement. And so we see this there in verse 27. There's this dramatic shift. In the first 26 verses, the focus has been primarily on Paul, on his circumstances. And as we've said, Paul is not really giving a missionary update about him. What he keeps talking about is the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. So when you ask Paul, Paul, how are you doing in prison? Paul says, well, how's the gospel doing? Because if the gospel's advancing, if Christ is being proclaimed, then I rejoice. Uh, We were playing a a game with some friends the other night called Codenames. Some of you guys have played that, even with us. Codenames is just a little fun game. You give a one-word clue, and as you give that clue, you try to find as many words as you can based off that clue. Well, if I gave you the clue, the Apostle Paul, here are some things that you'd point to. You'd say, gospel-centered, gospel-focused, gospel-joy, gospel-proclamation. That's because in the first 26 verses, he just keeps going, gospel, gospel, gospel. It's there in verse 5. It's there in verse 12. It's in verse 16. It's in verse 18. But now he turns to exhort the Philippians about them advancing the gospel, them honoring the gospel, them living in a way that magnifies Christ in their life or by death. You see, the gospel is speaking loud and clear in Paul's life, and then his desire is that he would just see it duplicated and multiplied in the lives of the Philippians. Every single believer in the Philippian church, Paul was zealous for them to say the same thing, for me to live is Christ. So here in verse 27, there's a change of gears. He moves away from him as the example and begives, begins to give some exhortation for how they're to live. And we know this because this is the first imperative. This whole time, he hasn't commanded them to do anything. But now, this central, focused imperative becomes the hinge points. We also know this is true because of the second person pl- pronouns. Paul is not saying I, me, and my anymore. He's saying you all, you all, you all. Each imperative is you all. Well, if you're taking notes, you want to write this down because here's our main idea. And it's very simple. What does Paul want the Philippians to do? What does he want us to do 2,000 years later? It's simple as this. Live worthy lives together as citizens of our heavenly kingdom. Let me say it one more time. Live worthy lives together as citizens of our heavenly kingdom. And the outline just comes straight from the text. So if you're taking notes, here's our outline. First, we have the supreme command. Then we have this idea of staying together, standing together, striving together. The supreme command, staying together, standing together, striving together. So let's jump right in. The supreme command. Look at verse 27. Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul's command here begins with that word only, monos. And what Paul is saying is, look, I want to make sure that if you're not paying attention, if you haven't got anything, I want you to get this one thing. This one thing is of supreme importance. So focus on this. Give your attention to this. Paul is saying, let your conduct be consistent with your profession. And that second word that he uses there, that word worthy, in that Greek construction, it's there placed for emphasis. Literally, it says, only worthily of the gospel of Christ conduct yourself. Now, tragically, some people, they read that and they misinterpret that. And they think that we need to live in a way that makes us worthy of the gospel in a different sense. But let me ask you this. What makes you and I worthy of the gospel? What makes you worthy of the gospel? The answer is nothing. Nothing. That's not how it works. We don't earn our salvation. We don't live a kind of life that puts pressure on God to look down on us and say, "Oh, I think I need, I owe that guy salvation. I think I owe her rescue." That is not how the gospel works. That makes voice uh, grace void. The only thing that you and I are worthy of is divine judgment. You live out your life a million, a billion good deeds, but one evil deed. And you know what James says, if you're guilty in one point, then you're guilty of them all. So the only thing that we're worthy of is hell. But listen, Paul is not talking about how we become Christians. What Paul is pointing to here is that you have already been bought. You are saved. You're already regenerate. You're believers. Trying to live in a way that makes you worthy of the gospel, listen, is not the gospel. The gospel of grace saves us, not because of how we lived, but even in spite of how you lived. So if Paul is saying that there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation, then we have to ask, well, what what way are we to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? When Paul says only worthily of the gospel of Christ conduct yourselves, what he's doing is he's placing emphasis on the way that we're to live. The way we're to live. He's not saying merit salvation. What he's saying is because you have salvation, you mirror it. You see, I think sometimes, even as believers, we're always trying to live up to something when in fact what we should be doing is living it out. You already are a believer if you've trusted Christ for salvation. And the expectation is for you to just live in a way that's consistent with the gospel. Your life And the gospel should be so in step with one another that as people observe your life, you're dancing to the tune of Jesus. The rhythm of your life looks all like the gospel. Well, how then can we make it evidence that our number one priority in this life is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? Well, Paul begins to unpack it here in verse 27, but really as we move forward and as we spend the next couple of weeks examining this, Paul is gonna flesh this out for us. You see, Paul doesn't just give a command, but not help us out practically. He does this throughout all of his writings. In fact, we see this over and over again from Paul in other epistles, to live in a manner worthy, to live in a manner worthy. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 12, it says this, that you would walk, in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians. Colossians chapter one. And look there at verse 10, Colossians 1.10, as Paul is again describing what it means to walk in a manner worthy. There in Colossians 1.10, Paul writes this, that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, Okay, give us something else, Paul. What does that look like, Paul? Well, here it is. To please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of Of the saints. Right there, we have a lot of practical implications for what it means to live in a manner worthy, to please Him, to know Him, to joyfully give thanks to Him. Ladies, you studied this past week on Wednesday evening, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 1 says this, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, I exhort you to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Jess and I, we were talking about this passage, and um, she said, uh, yeah, the, the passage that you're preaching has the same idea, the same concept. And she said, that word is peripateo. And I was like, well, girl, look at you with the Greek. I said, but you're wrong, though, because it's not peripateo. In Ephesians 4, it's peripateo. In Colossians 1, it's peripateo. In 1 Thessalonians, it's peripateo. Because typically, when Paul uses this idea, that is what he's saying. So you would expect that he's using that word here, but he doesn't do that. He uses a different word. Now, when we say to walk in a manner where, I remember when I first became a Christian and people say, hey, how's your walk with Jesus going? I'm like, what does that mean? Am I supposed to walk differently? But when people say, how's your walk going? They just mean, how are you living What is your life like? But Paul, he doesn't use this word walk that we would expect. He uses a different word, and that should raise an eyebrow. Why is Paul choosing to use a different word? Look there in verse 27. The word that Paul uses is polythuomai. And you say, Dom, what does that mean? Well, that just comes from the Greek word polis, which means city. And this is where we get our word politics or political Polyulamai simply means to live as a citizen. You are carrying out your civil duty. And so again, why does Paul choose to use this idea of citizenship rather than the other word? And here's a few observations. First of all, the word captures the corporate reality. Uh, We were talking to Terry last night. Uh, Terry is from France, born in France. And for a while there, he didn't have his American citizenship. So I was asking him questions about what it was like to finally get your citizenship. Well, he became an American citizen, and now he's an American citizen with all the Americans. There's this corporate idea embedded in this word. The concept of being a citizen assumes that you, along with others, you are comprising a, a certain population. Which is also to say that you don't have citizenship apart from other people. There is no citizen of one nation by yourself. This is a joint effort, a communal effort. Our citizenship is not one of independence. But we, as believers, are to display the worth and beauty of Christ. And we're to do that together as fellow citizens of heaven. But second, notice that Paul doesn't say, again, become citizens What he says is, behave like citizens. And that's the difference. That means they're already citizens of heaven. And so Paul is just saying, just act like a citizen of heaven. Ephesians 2.19 says this, You are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of the household of God. We're to live out, church, what we already are. You say, Well, Dom, what are we? Look at Philippians 3.20. Flip on back to Philippians 3.20, because Paul uses the noun form right there. In 3.20, he says, Christian, your citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But thirdly, the city of Philippi was a Roman colony. And so, what Paul is doing, he's tapping into their pride in the Roman colony. In Acts chapter 16, it tells us that that tiny little city of Philippi, which was hundreds of miles away, they regarded themselves like a little mini Rome. And so, they adopted the customs, the manners, the dress, the language. They they were Rome in their minds. And they enjoyed their Roman citizenship. In fact, they were very proud to be Roman citizens, so much so. That remember when Paul comes to Philippi in Acts chapter 16 and he's there preaching and the the authorities come and grab him and throw him and Silas into prison and they beat him. This is what they say in Acts chapter 16. It says, when they brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, look, these men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews. And they're proclaiming customs, which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. They didn't even call themselves Philippians. They call themselves Romans. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, I know you take pride in your city. I, I do that. I-, I live here in Seaside, but man, I'm an Angelino. I grew up in LA. I love LA. In fact, we were on a little hike the other day and we saw this family walking by and he was wearing an LA Dodger hat. So we're like, yeah, what's up? You from LA? He's like, I'm from Bakersfield. So we're like, <laughs> we-, we didn't say anything there, but we walked away and said, that doesn't count. But Bakersfield is not Los Angeles. But but I get this way about my city. I love my city. I want, I want to be known for my city. I want to represent my city. Paul chooses to deliberately use this word because he knows how much they value their citizenship of Rome. And what he's emphasizing here is that, listen, this isn't about your civic identity. That's not what defines you. That's not what determines your conduct He's saying, no, instead, you are a citizen of heaven. You serve a great king. So everything that you do, everything that you are, all of your conduct should reflect your heavenly citizenship. He says, look, I know you're loyal to your country. I know you're proud of your status. I know that you you think that you have a great city, but you have a celestial city, a never-ending city, A glorious city where Christ sits as king represents that city. And so if we are to embrace our high privilege, even as we think about America and being proud to be an American, Paul is saying, well, hold on a second. You you can be happy that you are an American. You can be thankful to the Lord for your privileges, but never forget you have a greater citizenship in heaven. And because you have a greater citizenship, that also means that you have a greater responsibility. The question is, well, how should the fact that we're citizens of heaven, how should that practically impact our lives? In what way were the Philippians to demonstrate their allegiance and their gratitude of being heavenly citizens of Christ Jesus, the King? Well, if you have the new or the King James Version— The answer to that question is this. Let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, Dom, what does that mean? Because I'm not into the Elizabethan, you know, uh, English. That word conversation, it's just talking about the whole course of life. It's not about the words that you speak, but it's the way that you live. To act becomingly, means that it fits, it corresponds, it's congruence. Your lifestyle, you could replace it with it's fitting, it's appropriate. So ladies, I'm not sure, maybe you go and try on a dress and you come out and your husband's sitting there waiting, right? And he puts his phone away probably and you kind of do a twirl and you say, honey, how does this dress look? Is it becoming of me? Well, what is she asking? She wants to know is... Does this match my style? Does this enhance my beauty? Is this appropriate? See, the way that we conduct ourselves should be suitable with the gospel. You don't go, this is just a little free pointer for some of you young people. You don't go to a job interview with your sandals and a cutoff. You just don't walk into a job interview well, unless you're like working at the beach or something. But you don't walk into a job interview with inappropriate attire. You don't go to a funeral with your face painted and a bullhorn. Ole, 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 ole. You don't do that at a funeral. Why? Because that would be inappropriate. You want your dress and your behavior to match the occasion. And so this is what Paul is saying. Be properly dressed while here on earth for the occasion And over and over again in the New Testament, Paul and others are constantly saying, we need to put on and put off, put on and put off, put on righteousness, put on the full armor of God, put on and put off the deeds of the flesh. Uh, Look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And look there at verse 12. Again, Paul just laying out for us what this putting on of gospel attire looks like and how it displays the beauty of Christ. Colossians 3 and verse 12 reads this. So, as the elect of God, as those who are chosen, holy and beloved, he says this, put on a heart of compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. And above all things, Paul says this, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Listen, as heavenly citizens, as those who are putting on Christ, who are adorning ourselves in the gospel, we need to make sure that our manner, our speech, our dress, our whole behavior is fitting with the gospel. That's just saying your conduct needs to match your citizenship. That's what it is. So we speak clean and pure language of heaven. We bear witness to the customs of heaven. We carry on the affairs of heaven. We don't allow the infiltration of the world and the worldly philosophies and worldviews to corrupt us. We live with the kind of conduct that says, you are from heaven. That's what Paul is getting at. And we also listen to this. We bear the identity of heaven, which is this. We are Christians. You and I should be proud Christians. That's why it's a little confusing to me to see an American athlete who's representing our country turning their back on the flag, stopping their ears during the national anthem. Because if you're born in America, if you're training in America, And if you're making a conscious choice to accept the privilege of displaying the strength of America through your athletics, there's a disconnect when you intentionally disrespect the country to which you are trying to represent. And listen, I'm I'm thinking the best. So at the very least, it's communicating there is a division in the relationship. But what you think, what do you think other people are thinking or saying about someone who turns their back on the flag? Does it cause other countries to respect America or to reject America? And then I want you to think of this because that's one scenario and we can have some commentary on that. But as the world watches you live and you bear the name Christ and they observe your life, are they saying you're doing the same thing? You're turning your back on Christ. You're plugging your ears at the beautiful message of the gospel. Christian, is your life becoming of the gospel? Does it reflect the greatness of grace shown to you by the Lord Jesus Christ? Do your daily actions and attitudes reveal the clothing of Christ's beauty and majesty and righteousness? Does your lifestyle match with the wealth that has been given to you by Jesus. In 1955, there was a Frenchman, some of you might be familiar, his name was Marcel Marceau. He introduced America to the art of mime. Now Marcel, he reached global fame when he appeared on Broadway and a couple of television shows. He was on the Ed Sullivan show, he was on Johnny Carson. But he's this famous mime, and he was once asked, What's the difference between regular acting and pantomime? Well, what's the difference between the two? And his answer was very insightful. This is what he said. He said, well, when there's a bad actor, the words are there even if the actor is no good. So you can still pick up what's being communicated because the words are there. But when there are no words and you're just observing the life, he says, when the mime is not good, there's nothing left. A mime must be very clear and very strong. And listen, the same thing is true for the Christian. Our conduct will determine the kind of witness that we have. And so, if people are looking at your life and it's all hypocritical, you're saying one thing, you're doing another, everyone's going to see it your neighbors, your friends, your kids, your parents. What Paul is saying here is, look, the words that you speak need to be gospel words, but your works need to match with those words. There needs to be consistency. We need to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. It speaks volumes of Christ's worth. There was this church member who came to a pastor and he said, pastor, I've got this friend uh, who is a non-believer? Um, they, they're in, into some false religion? Do you have some resources you can give me so I can be, uh, you know, more evangelistic to this person? So the pastor gave some resources, but said, "But you know what? I want you to open up your Bible and turn to second Corinthians chapter three and verse two. And so he opened up his Bible and he read, and there it says, "You are our letter. Written on our hearts, known and read." by all men. And this is what he said, the best literature in the world is no substitute for your own life. Let them see Christ in your behavior, and they will op- and that will open up opportunities for you to share Christ's gospel with them. So again, let me ask a very introspective question for you. Does your life, Christian, does it help or does it hinder people's understanding of God's grace? the beauty of the gospel? Does the way you live, does it reel people in or does it repulse them to Christ and the gospel? Paul says, look, this is of utmost importance. If you're going to do one thing, focus on one, give your energy to one thing, behave as citizens of heaven. But again, Paul doesn't just give an exhortation and kind of leave it at that. No, he gives some specifics. So he gets practical here and he calls them to conduct worthy of the gospel. And right now, he's going to show us how. Okay, not only do you have the rights and privileges as citizens of heaven, but we also have responsibilities. You say, Dom, what are those responsibilities? Well, look at the second part of verse 27. We are to stay together. Paul says, so whether I come and see you or I remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind contending together for the faith of the gospel. Did you see all those words in that verse? One spirit, one mind, contending together. There's this umbrella over this passage of unity. And unity is woven throughout the entire epistle because plural imperative after plural plural imperative is always directed at the church's unity. Not just tolerating one another. Uh, I can stand you for a little bit. No, no, no. This is real Bible fellowship, real unity. When you think about what unites us, it's not age, it's not race, it's not economic status. What unites us is Christ. And that is the most magnetic thing in all the earth. When you see another Christian, isn't your heart drawn by the Spirit of God to other people who love Jesus? It pumps me up to hear you guys sing when we sing. I get so I get Terry's back there he's he's on the drums baby I'm like man he's worshiping that pumps me up and when I hear you sing it excites my heart because I know it's not just me but these people love the Lord Jesus there's a magnetism that happens when people are living for Christ so do you find yourself Christian attracted gravitating to others who love the Lord Jesus too you say, I want to be with them. I want to spend time with them. I want to go evangelize them. I want to pray with them. I want to read the scriptures with them. Or do you feel like, ah, I really don't like to be around Christians very much. If that's the case, then maybe you've lost your zeal to represent Christ as a heavenly citizen. And I'll just tell you this, the enemy is always trying to chip away at our unity. Jesus said what? What? He says, A kingdom divided against itself cannot what? Stand. A house divided its, against itself, it cannot stand. And the enemy knows that, so he's constantly just chipping away, trying to knock down the foundation of our unity. But Paul says, Look, whether I'm present or absent, I want you to be unified, together, living as citizens. Uh, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Let me show you this, because Paul, he's going to reiterate this to the Philippians. And he wants them to be encouraged, but he also wants encouragement from them. So he says to them in Philippians 1-2 to stay focused on this one purpose, and that's spreading the gospel, advancing the gospel. He says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, look at what Paul says, verse 2. He says, fulfill my joy. How do we do that, Paul? That you think the same way, by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. So, so just as the Philippians were being encouraged by Paul's joy in the gospel advancement, Paul's own faith, his own perseverance, was motivated, encouraged by seeing the Philippians be united. Look, when we're united. When we're focused together, we can accomplish so much. I remember when I was in high school, uh, as a team captain, I have to kind of lead by example. Well, our coach used to have us run around several blocks. And so what he would do is he'd get in his car and he would drive around and kind of watch us and speed up and make us run a little bit faster. But one day he doesn't get in his car. So I'm like, oh, sweet. So we start running and I have the bright idea, I'm gonna take a shortcut. And so we just do a loop around like this and I go to Dairy Queen. And I get the dip cone with other guys on my team. So we're like, oh, we still got probably like 15 minutes to kill here. While coach pulls up into the Dairy Queen, he looks through the window and I'm (laughs) licking a dip cone. Uh, obviously, I had to run a lot, probably till I threw up. But when I think back to that moment, that was a selfish decision that dishonored my coach. It was a disservice to my teammates. It distracted us from our goals. It did not demonstrate loyalty to the mission of the team or concern for the success of what we were trying to accomplish that basketball season. How do you live, Christian? when no one's watching you. You don't have mom or dad standing above you watching you. Are you still living on mission? Still working toward the advancement of the gospel? Think about this. What decisions did you make this week that would be different if you had the conscious awareness that the faith of other citizens of heaven are directly impacted by your decisions? Do you think you would maybe change some things up this week? There are souls that are waiting to see Christ on display in your life. There are people who need to see Jesus in your life personally. Paul knew his gospel joy would increase. He longed for his joy to increase. He wanted the Philippians to live in this way as heavenly citizens. And so he said, stay together, be united together, be consistent together, whether I'm with you or whether I'm gone You need to continue on in gospel advancements. But look back at the text. He also urges them to stand firm together. He says that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind contending together for the faith of the gospel. And all of that language right there should resonate especially with this congregation. He says, stand firm, strive side by side, in no way intimidated by your opponents, their destruction, your salvation, all of that language is teamwork vocabulary. It's the kind of instruction that a a coach gives his team before a big game. It is the kind of instruction that a commander gives his troops before they go into battle. And as an athlete, I resonate with this. I I love this. Get me in the locker room, Paul. But before I was a believer, I thought that Christians were weak. I thought they were soft. I thought that Christians only turned to Jesus because they were using him as a crutch because they couldn't handle with the difficulties of life. But then I became a believer and I met other believers and I started reading my Bible and I started reading about other Christians and then I realized this, Christians aren't weaklings. Christians are warriors. You can't help but read Paul and sense his wartime mentality. Paul's not some overweight PE coach that's never picked up a ball. Paul's not some guy out on the field that's never touched a gun. When we look at the Apostle Paul's life, he's battle-tested. Multiple tours, multiple victories, a few POWs. Acts chapter 16 tells us that Paul and Silas were beaten with rods for preaching the gospel. He knows that Philippi is antagonistic Toward the message. And he knows that if they live as citizens, if they live like true Christians, they will be persecuted. And so Paul says, Look, brothers, sisters, you're gonna be opposed. People aren't gonna like you. You start calling things sin, you start to identify truth, reality, what a man is, what a woman is, what marriage is. People are gonna fight back. They're not gonna like it. You're gonna be opposed. You're gonna be persecuted. He's gonna say later, You're gonna suffer. That's nothing new. Jesus said himself, if if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. The world will not give you any trouble at all if you're just devoted Roman citizen, devoted American citizen. You don't stir the pot. You bow to Caesar. you, you You don't ruffle any feathers. The world will love you. But you come out and you start preaching this word, you'll be opposed. Just like our brothers up in Canada who were in jail for opening their church. Turn to 1 Peter. Let me show you this because Peter says, look, the world expects you to act a certain way. 1 Peter chapter 4 in verse 3. 1 Peter 4 verse 3. This is what Peter says. For the time Already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking, parties, abominable idolatries, in all this, look what it says. They're surprised that you don't run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And what do they do because you're not participating? It says there, they malign you. But listen, church, this is why we need to stand firm. Here's the motivation in verse 5. He says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Christians, eternal life is at stake here. Salvation is at stake. We're not messing around here. That's why Paul tells Timothy to be a good soldier. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And he says, look, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlists him as a soldier. And if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. And then later on there in verse 10, Paul says this, for this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. You might be sitting here this morning and you don't have an athletic bone in your body. You don't know the first thing about combat or how to load a gun. It doesn't matter. Look, the Bible tells you that you are a soldier for Jesus Christ. You are heaven's Olympians. And so we need to live like that. Devoted, dedicated, disciplined, working together, striving together, encouraging one another, building one another up. That is what Paul is communicating. And you say, why? Why should I? Because Christ is worthy. Is he not? Paul tells Timothy that the aim of a good soldier is to please the one who enlists him. We serve the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who's coming back again. We must represent him. He is our Savior. We serve His kingdom. And that is what that word means. You're standing firm, under duress. People are firing at you. You're not moving. You're not running. You're not fleeing. You're not abandoning your post. Too many professing Christians nowadays are abandoning their post because of the culture. And Paul says, look, don't retreat. Stand for the truth. Be immovable. The church is supposed to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so Paul tells Timothy this, guard through the Holy Spirit who indwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And again, Paul's not telling us to go out in physical combat. We're not supposed to go slap non-believers. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this is a spiritual battle. So use your spiritual weapons. Love, serve, pray, do whatever it takes to win people, to advance the gospel. So like a great commander, Paul tells the Philippians, yes, Look, you're in a dogfight. You're outnumbered, but don't be discouraged. Christians, hold the line. Fight together. Be united. When one falls down, pick them up, but let's go. And lastly, look, he says, striving together for the gospel, for the faith of the gospel. And Paul is simply saying here, look, just be of the same mind, one mind. That's how we're going to be successful. Not divisions, not quarrels, not bickering, not gossip. We're to contend side by side, not contend with one another. We're not in competition with each other. We're to stand firm. So the standing firm is the defensive line, the striving together is the offensive line. And someone's going to take that ball and just run it down the middle with the gospel. So we both are on defense and on offense. That's how you win a game. You just don't have one. You have both. And Paul is saying the same thing. Actually, the word he uses is sin-athleto. Sin means together. He uses over and over in Philippians. And you can hear from athleto, that's where we get the English word athlete. So the idea is, look, we're competing as a team. We're striving together as a team. The ESV and the NASB translate it striving, right? Exerting energy. The Legacy Standard Bible actually translates it contending. And that's the picture that Paul has in mind. We are battling side by side. We're advancing the gospel on the gates of hell. Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail. I think, Nick, you referenced this. The Lord Jesus told the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26 that you need to advance the gospel. And when you do that, you know what happens? We turn men from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance. Listen, church, gospel advancement, gospel faithfulness, living as heavenly citizens, that is not just for pastors. That is for every single Christian here this morning. And the Lord's desire for you is to stand firm, to strive together, to stay together To obey this supreme command. If there's one thing that you obey, it is to live out your heavenly citizenship like a good soldier, like a devoted athlete. That's what Paul's desire is. When you get to Jude, Jude says this this is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Do you know how many people suffered and died to get the Bible into our own language? And it's still happening today. This is the most precious thing for the Christian. And the Bible tells us very clearly that we're to defend it, and we're to promote it, and we're to proclaim it. We cannot be kicking back and relaxing in this life. Is the gospel not the most important thing in all the world to you? I think about this frequently. Even as I sing, I don't deserve it. I could have still been on my way to hell or in hell already but God was so gracious to me. Nothing I did to deserve it. Nothing I did to earn it. But when I think about God being the creator and I think about me being a rebel, denying him, dishonoring him, wanting to be autonomous, wanting to seek pleasure on my own, and yet God, because of his great sovereign grace, came down and grabbed a hold of my heart and he presented Jesus to me, who was born a virgin, who lived a perfect life, who obeyed every single command that I couldn't obey, And he did that all the way up to a cross that I deserved, And he hung there and he took the full wrath of God on himself for my sake. So what the scripture says is true. That I deserve that. It was my sin that put him there. But he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that what? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the most glorious truth in all of the world. And Paul is saying, let's advance that truth. That is worthy to live for. So again, are you living for the gospel? There's a story told about Alexander the Great. He met a lazy, good-for-nothing soldier. And so he called him to himself, and he said, Son, what's your name? The guy said, Alexander, sir. Alexander said, well, then either change your name or change your ways. Alexander didn't want someone misrepresenting his name. How much more the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. We thank you that we are citizens of heaven, richly blessed. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And what an honor it is to represent you, our King, and to represent your kingdom, which will never perish. God, you have given us life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the source of all happiness. Oh Jesus, you are our treasure you are worth living and dying for. No one satisfies as you do. And I pray, Father, that all of us here, we would live in such a way that is consistent with our confession, that we would produce the kind of life and works that is consistent with our profession. And I pray as people observe our life, they see our love for one another and for the world as we seek to serve and meet needs according to the grace that's provided, that people would see our life and they'd be attracted to the greatness and beauty and majesty of Christ. They would come running to the door who is Jesus. Oh, Father, our heavenly citizenship is the most beautiful thing about our identity. We thank you that you've given us your spirit. who is our passport with no expiration date. You've given us a heavenly home. Thank you for making us members of your kingdom, chosen people, a royal peacehood, priesthood, a holy nation, your own special possession. Cause us, God, to stand, to strive against the cultural tides that disregard you and your word. Help us to be of the same mind and the same purpose to advance your kingdom and your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.